James chapter 3, we pick up this morning where we left off last Sunday night. We left off in verse 12, addressing the issue, or we left off actually last week in verse 2, but uh, we addressed this issue of the tongue, and now we come to a new, a new avenue where James is addressing genuine, genuine faith, and who are those who are genuinely wise. He says in verse 13, Who among you is a wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds, and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And may God add a blessing to the reading of His Word. And Father, as we come this morning and we, we examine what James had to say to us about both being wise and recognizing wisdom, I pray that you would give us just what we're looking for today, wisdom. Both the wisdom to recognize true and false wisdom and give us true wisdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In James chapter 1, verse 18, verses 1 through 18, James deals with the subject of trials and how he expects Christians to respond to them. He expects us to endure in trials with rejoicing. And then in 1, 19-27, he turns to the subject of true Christianity, contrasting true claims to faith and false claims to faith. And we've seen for a couple of weeks now how the rest of the book is really an unpacking of the three descriptions of genuine faith that he gives in 1, 26 and 27. First of all, it shows up in our speech. That's what he says in 1, 26. Genuine faith is evident by a person's tongue. We spent some time talking about how you're incapable of mastering the tongue until the heart is mastered because we only speak that which comes out of the heart. So if we have bitter and cursings and we have lies and we have divisiveness coming from our mouth, the problem is not as much about breaking a bad habit in our speech as it is getting our heart broken and under the, under the direction of God. The second thing that he mentioned in the first part of verse 27 is that genuine religion shows up in our care and our need for others, and that's what chapter 2 was about. And then the third thing that he says about true religion in 127b is that it shows up in our refusal to conform to the worldliness that is so prevailing of our day. And I said to you that that's what the rest of the book is predominantly about. It's about how do we fight off this whole worldliness that we address. And that brings us to the passage that we're going to study this morning. It's a passage in which James speaks about wisdom. Now you may be wondering, why or what is the connection between sins of the tongue and this challenge, this exhortation that he gives us in the area of the tongue? And he goes and starts talking about wisdom. Well, there's actually a fairly obvious connection. You will remember that James, following Jesus, stressed that the tongue was simply a reflection of the heart. That's what Jesus said. You speak that which comes out of your heart. 
So James, having moved us from the symptom of the problem to the source of the problem, the heart, evidenced by the tongue, he now asks the question about how one knows whether a person has genuine wisdom or not. Who's wise? That's the aim of the text, to answer the question. And he asks the question, how can I tell if someone I listen to is wise? Who is wise among us? How does a person know that he is wise or she is wise? Are you wise? Now, we have this tendency to take on this false humility and say, oh, no, I'm not wise. Somebody else is wise. Somebody has to be wise. The Bible says that we should be able to recognize genuine wisdom. If everybody in this church stands up and says, oh, no, I'm not wise, then we have a church full of fools. There are wise people among us. Some of you are wise. I hope that I am wise. I believe after studying the passage that I'm wise. I have a great deal of wisdom still to gain. I recognize wisdom in many of you and a great deal of wisdom still to gain. But how do you recognize wisdom, genuine wisdom in somebody else, and how do you recognize it in yourself? Well, James contrasts worldliness and wisdom. Now, we've been reading through the book of Proverbs and are reading through the Bible in a year, in the month of October. I love the book of Proverbs. I try to read through it multiple times in the year. And I'm always amazed that I am reminded of that which I've easily forgotten. I had my oral defense of my project on Tuesday morning, and I got up early Tuesday morning, and I read my Proverbs for the day. And I was reminded, the writer of Proverbs says, a fool answers before he listens. And I just made myself a note on my notes that I was taking in with me. Pause before you answer. Sometimes whenever you're talking about something that you feel like you know something very well, somebody asks a question, and before they finish asking the question, you're loaded with the answer. But because you were so quick to respond, you didn't listen to the question. I told myself, pause and listen to the question. And if you don't understand what they want, ask them, what do you want? And that's what I did. And that's what we all need to do in our conversations. Always, we need to pause and listen. So many times people don't let somebody finish a thought. They cut them off in mid-sentence. They cut them off where they think it's going to be. It's rude. It's immature. It's ungodly. It's not wise. Learn to be a listener Listen to what somebody has to say. There'll be plenty of time for you to speak, and if there's not, it's probably best. You probably didn't need to say everything you wanted to say anyway. The Bible talks about wisdom. From the book of Proverbs, we learn that worldliness begins with a lack of wisdom. Worldliness begins with a lack of wisdom. And wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. And worldliness begins without the fear of the Lord. And so worldliness always entails a lack of wisdom. And also, don't confuse wisdom and knowledge. There's a difference between wisdom and knowledge. Somebody can have a great deal of knowledge and not be very wise. The story is told of Socrates, supposedly one of the greatest thinkers in humanity. A young man came to Socrates once and he said, Oh, great Socrates, I come to you for knowledge. Now, Socrates, being a wise man, recognized quickly the pompous and arrogance of the young man. So he said, Come with me, let's go for a walk. And as they were walking through the city, and he asked him, What do you want? What do you want? And the man said, Knowledge, O wise Socrates. I want knowledge. How badly do you want it? Oh, I want it badly, Socrates. And I want, and it must be that you must be my instructor. And they ended up at their walk at the water, the sea. And they said, Come and walk with me. And the clothes and all, they walked right out into the sea until they were about 
shoulder deep in the water. And Socrates, if you've seen any pictures of him, is displayed, there's uh, the drawings of him show him to be a quite large man, not heavy, but muscular, a big man. The story says that Socrates put his hands on this young man's shoulders and he pushed him underwater. And he held him underwater for about 30 seconds. And then he pulled him up and he said, What do you want, young man? And he said, I want knowledge. I want knowledge. In which Socrates pushed him back underwater. He held him underwater for about 45 seconds and he pulled him back up. And he said, What do you want, young man? What do you want? And he said, I want knowledge. And he pushed him underwater and held him underwater for another 45 seconds. Until he pulled him back up and he was coughing and spitting. And he said, what do you want? And he said, air, I want air. And he said, and when you want knowledge as badly as you want air, you'll get it. How badly do you want wisdom? Wisdom from God. When you want wisdom as badly as you want air, when it's been deprived from you, you'll get it. But wisdom and knowledge are not the same thing. Wisdom is knowledge applied. As we come to James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, James makes three observations about wisdom. I'll give them to you up front and then I'll unpack them. The first observation that James makes in verses 13 and 14 is that Christian wisdom is evidenced by a person's behavior. That's the first observation that he makes. It's evidenced by a person's behavior. Now, that's not what we would expect for a definition of wisdom, and we'll get into that more in a moment. The second observation that he makes in verses 15 and 16 is a negative description of wisdom. He gives a false wisdom. What does false wisdom look like? Because remember, you don't always define what something is. Sometimes it's good to define what it is not so you can recognize other false impressions of it. The third observation he gives in verses 15 and 16 is a, is a, is a detailed description of what true wisdom looks like. He gives us some things that we should be looking for in a person to determine whether they're genuinely wise or not. Let's take them one at a time. First, the first observation in verses 13 and 14 is that true wisdom is recognized by a person's behavior. James begins by asking a simple question, Who among you is wise? Now, there may be a reference here to those whom he addressed in chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should strive to be teachers. You know, we don't need any unwise men or women teaching. I don't think that's the case, though. Look at chapter 1, verse 5. I think that he has all of us in mind. Notice that he says, But if any of you, any of you, any of you, teacher or non-teacher, old or young, any of you in chapter 1, verse 5, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Anybody. So when he asks the question in chapter 3, Verse 13, who among you is wise? I think that he's making this reference to all of us. I think that he's speaking about everybody here this morning among Memorial Baptist Church. Who is wise in Memorial Baptist Church? Who are the wise? Now, how do you recognize the wise members? Well, someone says you look for the gray hair. The Bible speaks about gray hair being a symbol of wisdom. And what it means by that is not necessarily that gray hair is wisdom. It means that those who have lived long enough to get gray hair usually have a little bit more wisdom. Now, some people gray early, and it's obvious. Not just by their hair, but by their lack of wisdom. Nor can you go out and dye your hair gray and then say, look how wise I am, when we would all think you're really quite the fool. 
So how do we tell who the wise person is? Positively and negatively. Positively. Let's begin positively. It's always good to begin positively since James began positively. Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds, and the gentleness of wisdom. James says that the positive trait of true wisdom is made evident by a person's humble kingdom service. Now that's not what you would expect for James to say, is it? That's not what you would expect. Who among you is wise? Most of us would expect for us to give some kind of a definition. I've written a definition that I would expect James to give. I would expect him to say something like this. Wisdom is the ability to discern truth when the facts are not clear. Like Solomon did when two women brought one child before him and both claimed to be the mother. I mean, is that not the picture of wisdom? Isn't that what we'd expect him to say? Here's a definition of wisdom. Or you might expect Solomon to say this in light of my recent accomplishments. You can recognize the wise man by his degrees hanging on the wall, by his language that he uses when he talks. Not true. You can have more degrees than a thermometer and not be very wise. You can have the, you can have the vocabulary of a Webster and not be very wise. Knowledge does not equal wisdom. Listen, there are child prodigies. We were traveling a few weeks ago and we heard of a young man who was 16 years old working on his Ph.D. at some university in quantum physics or something. 16 years old. I was still learning the alphabet at 16. I guarantee you that he has a great deal of knowledge. But at 16, I'll also guarantee you that he's probably not very wise. Don't confuse knowledge with wisdom. That's not what James says at all. Or what, notice what James says in verse 13. He says that the genuinely wise are recognized by their good behavior and by deeds that are done with a gentle, that's the word humble, spirit. Now that's not what we expect from him. James was obviously well aware of the book of Proverbs. Again, I love the book of Proverbs. Probably one of the most memorized Proverbs is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him, that's God, and He will make your path straight. Or as the writer Alec Moyer has described wisdom, wisdom is the God-given ability to see how in all of our ways we may acknowledge God. That's what true wisdom is. James is saying just that. In fact, he may be saying just a little bit more. He may be saying that wisdom is not simply seeing how we may acknowledge God in all of our ways, but actually seeing and then doing what we see that we are to do. Wisdom is not just the ability to recognize what sin is. Wisdom is the ability to recognize what sin is and then avoid it. It's not the person that says, I know that this is sin, and they're in it. That's not wise. In fact, we might say that that's ignorant. According to James, true wisdom is acknowledging God in all of our ways. True wisdom is living in the fear of God, in the awe of God, in the respect and reverence of God, in all of our ways, in every aspect of living our life, in accordance with the reverence and fear of God. It's done with humility. That's what true wisdom is. Now, that's not a very popular word today, humility. Let's face it, it's never been popular. It wasn't popular with the Greeks. It wasn't popular with the Romans, and it's not popular in our day. We do not value humility. I mean, let's just be honest. We don't value humility. We value strength. We, we value the person who speaks their mind. Well, I'll tell you what, I just spoke my mind. And somebody hears that and says, ooh, they're strong. 
We value the person who's outspoken in America. We value the person who gets things done their way. When the Bible says that what we should value is the humble person, the gentle person, a gentle and quiet spirit, the Bible talks about being the kind of person who pleases God. Now, no one was more humble than Jesus. And His most loyal followers have always been recognized by their humility. In AD 117, Christianity was not as free as it is today. And there was a popular preacher by the name of Ignatius. He was condemned to death. He was sent to Rome to be thrown to hungry wild animals. A squad of ten soldiers accompanied him on the long journey. And he wrote seven letters as he traveled. You can read them in Fox's Book of Martyrs. There's no trace of bitterness in a single letter. He's being accompanied by ten soldiers to Rome to be thrown to wild beasts. Can you think of a worse death? Hanging is far better. Probably being burned at the stake is better. There comes a point when it's gone. But being thrown to wild beasts to be gnawed on by hungry lions? He writes seven letters in his journey. And the letters are full of gratitude for kindness received on the journey by the soldiers that were taking him to his death. His one concern was to be found in Christ. You know, if you can see death coming, I pray that you will strive to be able to say, you leave this earth with peace in Christ. If we can see death coming, then let it be said of us, we were humble and ready to meet our Savior. Positively, James is saying that the wise Christian is the person who lives out their life day in and day out according to God's commands. We'll go into that in a little bit more detail in a moment. Negatively in, verse, negatively, in verse 14, he describes wisdom. Notice verse 14 again. But it's a, it's a conjunction of contrast. He's going to contrast the positive versus the negative. Now he goes to the negative. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. He says that the person who claims to be wise but has a life characterized by a spirit of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition is not a wise person at all. In fact, he calls them a liar. Jealousy. Jealousy is rooted in envy of others, which often manifests itself in criticism of others. And criticism of others. When we are jealous, we criticize. That's what we do. Somebody else gets a larger house than ours and we criticize. Look at how they're, they're, they're living beyond their means. Somebody else buys a new car when we can't buy a new car. Well, why do they have to go and buy that? We criticize. Look at their flaunting. Look what they're doing. Why do they need... We begin to criticize and pick. That's how jealousy is rooted. That's how jealousy is evidenced. Furthermore, he describes the unwise as those who are selfishly ambitious. This was a term used to describe a person who sought out a political office by unethical means. Ooh. What would he say about our day? A person who seeks out a political office by unethical means. Now, nobody in the church ever seeks out an office by unethical means, do they? A person who's selfishly ambitious will go so far as to purposely cause division if it gives them what they want. They don't care about division. All they care about is divide and conquer. That's not wise. We might sum up verse 14 as a description of the person who's all about themselves. Do you know anybody like that? It's all about themselves. It's all about what somebody did to me. What somebody said to me. What they did not do for me. It's always about me. It's either what you did or didn't do for me or to me or with me or by me. And he says, you know what? 
A selfish, ambitious person is not wise. Now that moves him to verses 15 and 16 and his second observation. And since he's moved negatively in verse 14, he goes on negatively in verses 15 and 16 and gives us this negative observation. Here James tells us what wisdom is by telling us what it's not. Now you might recognize false wisdom by what it produces. And he gives us three characteristics of false wisdom. They're really simple. False wisdom is earthly, false wisdom is natural, and false wisdom is demonic. First, earthly. James says that false wisdom is earthly. The wisdom... True wisdom is, is not earthly, it's heavenly. Genuine wisdom from God is a heavenly wisdom. So when he describes wrong wisdom as earthly, he's describing it the way that Paul describes the body in 1 Corinthians 15.40. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. What do you think of when you think of earthly? Earthly wisdom has, has much to commend itself for. Earthly wisdom is temporary. People who are pagans, people who are pagans have a great deal of earthly wisdom. Earthly wisdom can be gained in your own strength and your own power. Now listen, now listen. Not all earthly wisdom is bad. If you take your automobile to a mechanic who may be an atheist, but he's a great mechanic, he's got earthly wisdom and we go to him and we see him. Brent was talking to me about the man that's the general contractor for his church and he said he met this guy and the guy said, I'd like to build your church for you and he was going to do it at a greatly discounted price from anybody else because he said he'd like to do it for the church. And so I said, wow, is he a believer? And he said, no, believe it or not, if we got into that, I found out he's an atheist. <laughs> Go figure, God's using the devil to build the church, amen. The point is that not all earthly wisdom is necessarily bad wisdom, is it? Do you have a, an investment advisor? A lot of these investment types, I know that Jim's here and Jim's an investment type and I'm not meaning this to Jim, but, but oftentimes a trap of those that get into the investment field is that what do they love? They love money and they're good at loving money and they're good at it. And so you take your humble means to them and they invest it and they do well with it. Not all earthly wisdom is bad. But keep in check the difference between earthly wisdom and, we and, and, and heavenly wisdom. He says that earthly wisdom is natural. Some translators have this as unspiritual, which is fine since natural is the opposite of spiritual. The word is actually psychos, from which we get our word psyche or soul. When this word is used in the New Testament, it's always used negatively. It has to do with the part of the man that is ruled by his human reason. It's entirely reasonable. Whenever you begin to talk about following God in a certain direction, the unregenerate, the lost, or even those confessing Christians that don't really walk with God will often say to you, that's unreasonable. We were looking at going to Kosovo in 1999 as Southern Baptist missionaries. And if you know anything at all about the history of Kosovo and the war that was going on then, it was a very disrupted area. And I cannot tell you the number of people from churches that said to me, that's unreasonable. Why would you do that? See, that's earthly. That's temporary wisdom. Those that say, they, they look at everything from the logical standpoint. Well, the logical thing to do is, let me tell you something, it's not logical to put your faith in a person who supposedly raised from the dead and died for you, whom you cannot see and will not meet until you die. There ain't anything logical about that at all. That's why the Bible says without faith it's impossible to please God. 
There isn't anything logical about a human being being swallowed by a giant sea monster and spit up alive. There isn't anything logical about a bunch of musicians walking about a city and playing music and shouting and the walls falling in. There isn't anything logical about the Red Sea parting. There isn't anything logical about a bush, a bush burning but not burning up. There isn't anything logical about an axe head floating. There isn't anything logical about a, a fiery chariot coming down from heaven and carrying a man off into heaven. There isn't nothing logical about that. If you're the kind of person that is enslaved purely by your logic, you will be a weak, at best, Christian. We walk by faith and not by sight. That is not to say that we're not logical. Paul was an immensely logical theologian, but his logical theology was biblical logic, not natural logic. He talks about earthly wisdom as being, or about unnatural wisdom, about the wisdom that is not from God as being earthly and natural, and then he he digresses finally to call it demonic. He went from earthly to unspiritual to demonic. Now, what does that mean? He means that false wisdom is demonic in its origin rather than being from God. Even Christians can be misguided by demonic wisdom. You say, no, they can't. No, they can't. Yes, they can. Yes, they can. Christians can be influenced by demonic wisdom. I didn't say Christians can be possessed. I didn't say that. I said Christians can be influenced by demonic wisdom. Do you remember whenever Peter was talking to Jesus and Jesus was telling Peter about all the things that was going to happen? They're going to arrest me and they're going to try me and they're going to kill me. And three days later, I'm going to raise from the grave. And Peter said, not over my dead body. And Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. Jesus said to Peter, you are being influenced by demonic wisdom. So how do we recognize true wisdom then? If, if, if knowledge can be confused for wisdom and the world can be greatly knowledgeable and even Christians can be very knowledgeable, how do we distinguish knowledge between wisdom? Well, that's what he does in verses 17 and 18. He gives us a checklist for heavenly wisdom. And he gives us eight characteristics and one result. In verse 17, he gives us eight characteristics. And in verse 18, he gives us one result. Let's take the characteristics one at a time and quickly. Here's the observation of genuine wisdom. Here's what you look for. Number one, purity. But the wisdom from above is first pure. True wisdom produces purity in a person's life. The word is the word hagnos. It conveys the idea of moral blamelessness. Now, don't confuse purity with perfection. No one is perfect. But all Christians are called to be pure, holy, Godly in their conduct, waging a war against the desires of their flesh. Purity is not an unreasonable request from God. We all want purity in our life. How many of you, how many of you would say, if I came to you and I said to you, would you like to have a glass of water? It's not pure, but it's pretty good. Hmm, you'd think to yourself, hmm, what do you mean it's not pure? How impure is it? Well, I mean, well, that's, we're just arguing over semantics. It's, it's clear. Well, anybody that knows anything at all about amoebas and viruses and everything else knows that you don't, you don't see the virus floating around in the water like some little green burger in the glass. We want purity in our water. We want purity in the water that we drink and we want purity in the water that we cook our food with. Listen, ladies want purity in their gold. A husband brings his wife a new ring and he says... 
Well, it's mostly pure. What do you mean by that? We want purity in the air that we breathe. The government comes out and says, well, listen, we're releasing some toxins in the air, but the air is for the most part pretty pure. We want purity and God expects purity. Genuine wisdom is evidenced in the life of a true Christian by their struggle for a pure life. Let me ask you a question. Are you struggling for purity in your life? I didn't ask you if you're failing. We're all failing. The question is not whether you're failing. We're all failing. The question is, are you struggling for purity? Where are the limits for you? Not going to see that. Not going to do that. Not going to have that. Not going to go there. Where are the limits? And the limits are not the same for everyone, for we all have different struggles and weaknesses and temptations and trials. The question is, are you struggling for purity? You want to recognize the wise in the church? Find the men and the women who are struggling for personal purity in their life. The second characteristic that he says to look for in a person who has genuine wisdom is they're peaceable. Here is the idea that the wise person is a person of peace. It's not peace at any cost. Someone might read this and say, well, Pastor Charlie, he's not, he's not peace at any cost. I mean, sometimes we, he's done things or he's led the elders to do things and it's, it's, it's caused some people to not be happy at all. Listen, it's not peace at any cost. Paul said, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. If possible, sometimes it's not possible to be at peace with all men. Sometimes peace is not a possibility. But, but, the wise person knows when there is no possibility for peace and when peace should be sought after. And the wise person is always looking for the possibility of peace. The wise person is ready for reconciliation. The wise person is open to repentance and forgiveness. The wise person wants there to be unity, not disunity. And when there has to be disunity, they're looking for the opportunity for unity. We maintain our own peace with God first by submission to His will. And then in our congregation, quoting from Paul, we endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The Lord spoke of the blessedness of peacemakers. We need more peacemakers, but not peace at any cost, Mr. Jimmy Carter. It's not peace at any cost. It's not we'll just give the farm away so we have peace. It's wise peace. There was nobody who were greater friends and yet on opposite sides of the theological fence than George Whitfield and John Wesley. Now, if you don't know much about church history, Whitfield was a congregational Calvinist. And John Wesley, he and his brother were the founders of the modern-day Methodist church. Well, definitely not the modern-day church, I'll tell you. He was founder. He and his brothers were founders. After the great haystack meeting, they became, they became the founders of the Methodist church. And they, they were known as Methodists because of their methodological way of prayer and fasting and beseeching of the Lord. They called them Methodist because of the way they did it methodologically. But Whitfield and Wesley, who were contemporaries of one another and who were friends, were also at odds with one another theologically over certain issues such as the free grace of God. Wesley wrote a letter to Whitfield entitled Free Grace. Hmm. He showed Whitfield, Whitfield respond to the letter and he showed Wesley exactly what he believed. 
In other words, he didn't concede and say, well, Willis, I guess that you might be right and I might be wrong. When Whitfield responded to Wesley's letter called Free Grace, he outlined exactly what he believed and why he could not accept Wesley's Arminianism. But then he said, nothing but a single regard for the honor of Christ has forced this letter from me. I love and honor you for His sake. And when I come to a judgment, will thank you before men and angels for what you have under God done for my soul. You see, we can disagree and still love one another in Christ. Whitfield and Wesley were both great instruments used by God. I don't understand it. I do not understand how God uses men who I believe are theologically errored, and there are three categories, error, gross error, and heresy. I don't understand how God uses men who are theologically errored to do great things for His kingdom. All I can say is that our great God draws a straight line with a crooked ruler. That's all I can say. I don't know how He does it, but He does it. Listen, He's done some pretty remarkable things through me. Not boasting of me, but boasting in the Lord to say that He's done some pretty remarkable things through me to some people's lives. And I'm here to tell you, I am appalled at my wickedness at times. A sinner saved by grace and continuing to be saved by grace. How do you recognize those who were truly wise? The first thing you look for is do they pursue purity in their life? The second thing is are they quick to try to find peace? The third thing that he says is gentle. The word here means willing to yield to others. We stopped yesterday in Nashville to get some breakfast and we were walking into the restaurant and I have my eight-year-old son with me who's this tall and a teenager is walking out who's about this tall. And, and where we're walking on the sidewalk, the teenager has to move over about a hole of ten inches that we can get through. And she says to my son, well, excuse me, as she walked on by. I thought, boy, I just belt her one. That's not very peaceable, is it? That's what I thought of. So I worked on this text this week and this weekend as I saw that unfold. I thought, that isn't very gentle. Are you the kind of person that yields to others? Do you Little simple things like you being the one to hold the door for somebody else and you allowing somebody else to go in front of you and you allowing somebody else to have their way and not your way. Gentle. Gentle. Oh, gentleness has not come natural for me. And my children are going to grow up and probably need therapy, you know. Our, neither my wife nor I are, are real, we're not big um, pacifiers. You know what a pacifier is? You know, somebody bumps their knee and I see some mothers swoop up their children and they hug them and they pat them and they kiss the knee and they just let them cry and cry and cry. And Pat and I are like, suck it up! Life's not easy! Get tough now and you'll make it better later! But gentleness, see, knows when to pick up the child and say, you're hurt, let me hold you. It also knows when to say in the church, this isn't worth dividing over. A gentle spirit. Truly, those who are wise are those who are pure and those who are peaceable and those who are gentle. He says, forth, they're reasonable. Now, what does it mean to be reasonable? It was actually a military term. It means submissive. It means submissive to a commander. It means that you're not so rigid that you're incapable of having conversation with someone who you may disagree with. Reasonable. It means that you continue to be teachable. Have you met anybody who's not teachable any longer? No, I know. I've studied this and you're wrong. Really? 
How do you know that I'm wrong? You haven't asked me any questions yet. How do you know that I'm wrong? We haven't looked at any text yet. Reasonable. Genuine wisdom produces a reasonable spirit in a person. It's it, Parentally, it's like this. The child comes to the parent and says, has a request for the parent. And the parent, who's not reasonable, says, No! And the child says, But I don't want to hear it. No! That's not being reasonable. Now, sometimes I realize that there's no time to dialogue with the parent. Sometimes, you know what? When you're walking along a street and you say, come here, you don't have time to be able to say, listen, traffic is running at 35 miles an hour and this car is moving this way and this car is moving this way and it's a possibility that this car could move over and you would step out because you're not listening to me. All you want them to do is just say, come here! But you know what? There are other times when we should be listening to what somebody's request is and be reasonably, reasonably persuadable. That's what genuine wisdom is. It's reasonable. All right, present your case to me. Let me hear it. Okay, that's a pretty good case. Let's add, let's add some parameters to that and we can make some concessions here. He says that those who are wise are full of mercy. To be full of mercy is to be active in sympathy and compassion towards other believers and non-believers. Full of mercy. Full of mercy. Look again, chapter 2, verses 15 through 18. There's the picture of being full of mercy. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Boy, that's a picture of full of mercy, isn't it? Well, I'll pray for you. Go on, go on. Full of mercy says, what can I do for you? He says, full of good works. You can look at a person with true wisdom and in some measure be able to say, yes, I see fruit of joy and love and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. Self-control, that's a strong one. And in some measure in that person. Now, not all of the fruits are of equal strength. Some fruits are as big as grapefruits and some are as small as grapes. But do you see the fruit of good works in their life? He says, an un, he says in number seven, they're unwavering. Now, this word is translated in multiple ways. The, in the NIV is translated it as impartial. The King James has it as without partiality. And the New American Standard says unwavering. True wisdom is unwavering. That is to say that it doesn't vacillate. It's not, it's not hot one day and cold the next. A genuinely wise Christian is not on again, off again, on again, off again, up and down, up and down, and up and down. Hot and cold, hot and cold, nice and mean, nice and mean. Genuine wisdom produces consistency. Consistency. Do you now listen again? You say, oh, boy, "I'm not very consistent." So you recognize a weakness and strive for consistency. Consistency. He says finally that they're without hypocrisy. Now the NIV translates this word as sincere. That's a good. That's a good merge. The NASB says without hypocrisy. The King James says without hypocrisy. The NIV says sincere. Sincere or non-hypocritical person is the man or woman who doesn't disguise their real motives. They don't have to act one way dependent upon the crowd. When I first came to faith in Christ, and I used to ride my motorcycle with a group of men who would not at all be characterized as Christian. And I found myself having to act one way around them and another way around everybody else. Before long, I didn't ride with them any longer because I didn't like what it was making me out to be. Now, I think today, I could probably ride with the same group of men and just be who I am because I'm confident in my walk with Christ. But at, when I was a new believer, I couldn't. 
And so what I found was is I had to cut certain ties because I found that I was uncomfortable being in Christ among certain crowds. Some people find it just opposite. They're uncomfortable being like Christ in the Christian crowd because they're so used to being unchristlike in every other crowd without hypocrisy. That's genuine wisdom. You see how James describes wisdom then? He doesn't describe it with verbal imperatives. Do this and you'll be wise. He doesn't even describe it with a definition. This is what true wisdom is. He shows us what true wisdom is by how it looks in a person's life. Because true wisdom isn't just about the notions that you assent to. True wisdom is about acknowledging the Lord in all your ways. And that leads to the final verse, verse 18, where James in essence says that the genuinely wise person sows peace and reaps righteousness. See what he says? And the seed, and the seed, this is the wise person, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. He's talking about the Christian life, the steady toil of parents raising their children to live like this, the work of the mission, the training of men and women for the ministry, the weekly Sunday school class and the weekly sermons. He's saying this. He said the true wisdom is evidence in the consistently sowing of righteousness and it reaps the fruit of righteousness. All this, James says, should be done by peacemakers. They practice what they preach. The atmosphere they're creating in their congregation is not, is not at variance with the gospel of peace. So who are the wise among us? Who are they? Well, James says, take this checklist and look around. When you find men and women who get multiple checks on the list, you'll probably find those who are wise. And this is what I say. May God lead all of us to be wise. And if you say to yourself, I'm, I'm not wise. I listen to the message and I'm not wise. Then this is what I close with. Chapter 1, verse 5. Turn back there again. This is where I close. If you're sitting here this morning and you say, but I'm just, I see so many flaws in my life and I'm not wise. What's James say? If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. You know what James says? God wants you to be wise. God wants you and me to be wise. Listen, He wants us to have these characteristics. He wants us to be pure and peaceable. He wants us to be reasonable and full of mercy. He wants us to be full of good works. He wants us to be gentle and unwavering and without hypocrisy. And so here's what James says. Do you lack these things? and ask of God who gives, and He will give it to you. As I pray for us, we're going to stand and be dismissed with the hymn, Only Trust Him, Only Trust Him.